0: This is Foreign, Domestic and Forbidden, the podcast about books and ideas. I'm Tim Trash.
1: And I am Joaquin Lobo.
0: And we'll be your host for the next hour. Joaquin, how are you?
1: I'm very excited. We have a guest. This is our second international guest. And uh, I've known Jennifer Clement for a long time. I actually didn't know what uh, she was doing until I recently watched a uh, really amazing film on Netflix called "A Prayer for the Stolen." This is actually the second time that this happens to me. The first time was uh, 2002, probably, and I was in Mexico City. Went to the movies, and I watched uh, "Amores Perros." Uh, I decided to stay because I was completely blown away um, by by the film. Uh, of course, directed by Alejandro González Iñárritu, um, and. I wanted to see who's written the the screenplay. And it turned out it was a friend of mine, Guillermo Ríaga. And a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, same thing happened, prayers with the stolen. I watched the film, I was blown away. It was such a magnificent, beautiful film. I seen a documentary directed by Tatiana Oueso I, completely fell in love with that documentary. So I was very interested in this film. And at the end of the film, of course, I wanted to see who'd written the screenplay or the book. And it turned out it was my friend, Jennifer Clement. So <laughs> now we're very, very happy to welcome Jennifer to, to our podcast. Uh Welcome, Jennifer.
2: Hi, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Oh You're very welcome. It's an honor. And I I read many, many years ago another book by Jennifer, uh, Widow Basquiat. And, you know, this is a very, very different story. Widow Basquiat is a very uh, New York uh, book that has a lot to do with your experience living in New York. And, you know, you are the perfect guest for a podcast because I think the three of us share dual identities or fluid identities in terms of geography and passports and languages and points of view. So you know the the whole issue of being in one place, inhabiting this mind, inhabiting this other language that, that that's always been you know something that I I have been curious about. Have you experienced that as someone who, who lives in Mexico. I mean, you were born in Mexico, Jennifer. Actually, so I think... it's,
2: un- it's unfortunate that I was not born in Mexico because I moved there when I was six months old. So I'm always having to have this conversation. So I never have lived or even been to the place I was born. And so it's irrelevant really. Uh, so my sister was born here, but I wasn't. So, So I've lived all my life in Mexico. So uh, I feel as though I'm 100% Mexican, but I'm also in no strange way because of my parents, 100% American. I also feel extremely British because I went to a British school in Mexico and uh, the father of my children is a British family that came to Mexico in 1813. So my children are uh, uh, on that side of the family, they've been in Mexico for many, many generations and are very Mexican, but with a complex background. Their great-grandfather was Pancho Villa's doctor, for example. So, yeah, so I feel like I'm everything and nothing in an odd way. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Do you... Do you- yeah oh sorry do you do you write in english or in spanish i
2: I mostly write in english although what my sister says is you write in english but it's spanish (laughs) 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 so it was interesting with prayers for the stolen actually that francisco goldman who wrote a review of the book he addressed this kind of particular english um that it's hard for me to know because I'm doing it, but it is somehow a kind of a Mexican English or something.
1: It reminds me of people saying that Borges wrote in Spanish, but he really wrote in British yeah, English. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, it's true. And, and actually, since I'm a quite a scholar of Borges, uh, I, would, I would agree with that assessment. In many ways, he was an English British even old English <laughs> writer in Spanish, yeah.
1: We have we have a topic that we want to play with today. See if, see if you like it, Jennifer.
2: Okay.
0: I was <clears throat> I was wondering about a thing, um, and I think you're the perfect person to talk about that. Um, I think starting in 2001 with 9/11 and the aftermath of 9/11. Um, I was really under the impression back then that creative nonfiction or literary nonfiction was slowly eating fiction's lunch and making, making huge advances because we were living in a time when we couldn't really find out the truth anymore. I think to me that was the first moment when I really realized that on certain questions, we will never find out what actually happened. And and it came very, very fast and hard in that time. After the US invasion of Iraq and the subsequent discovery that Iraq had actually never possessed any weapons of mass destruction, the main question became, did the US act in good faith on bad intelligence or did the Bush administration act in bad faith on perfectly correct intelligence? And to me, it was always, well, unless we, I don't know, inject something into into the people who were in that room at whatever time they made the decision, we'll we'll actually never know. Um, And and even if we were able to gather all these people, each of them would have a different story uh, probably. So the question was, of course, always answered according to ideology, political leanings, but the people involved never decisively addressed the issue. And so to me, at that time, fiction became this almost obsolescent thing. I mean, never quite, because I love fiction, but, but nonetheless, it, it the, the form of creative nonfiction became so super important because it said, okay, you're not going to get the whole truth, but I, who wrote this book, lived through the experience, and it's 100% authentic. And I think that appealed to a lot of readers, that there was at least one person they could hold accountable for what was written. And so in a world of fabricated truths and outright lies, that was one way of luring the reader in and saying, hey, I'm relevant. And of course, nonfiction used all the tools and and, uh, techniques from fiction. But but ever since the Trump era and Russian troll farms disseminating bogus information, I feel that the whole concept of nonfiction has completely gone out the window because people just don't trust anything anymore, Um, according to their political leanings, they're living in tiny bubbles with their tiny tribes. And, and so that brings me to, to my question, is fiction dead in the face of all kinds of fictions from bad faith players that we hear every day? Or is this a new beginning for fiction as the only genre that is identifiably made up and derives its truth from invented experiences. So in other words, do we trust fiction more because we know it's a lie um, and it's the only genre that is undeniably false? Or is fiction just something that is so prevalent in everything we do now that it doesn't really matter anymore?
2: Well, that was a lot. (laughs) I know. I know. I mean i there's sort of many doors into this uh i don't see the moments as the same moments be it sort of the russian propaganda and all of that i mean they're they're linked to 9 11. so i mean to go in through the human rights door which is the freedom of expression door which is i'm very much involved in um, the the struggle for freedom of expression. I was the president of PEN Mexico for three years and then I was international PEN president for six years. So, I mean, just to address a little bit of that, I mean, I think what happened with 9-11, what the most devastating thing that happened that has to do with freedom of expression uh, is that um, really it was the first strike against democracy. So by... Create, being able to say that anything that is a terrorist, I have uh, jurisdiction over, and human rights don't matter. All these governments around the world, these dictatorships, have taken that George W. Bush, uh, Cheney uh, position that it's fair play. If it's a terrorist, it's, a, it's fair play. So you have somebody like uh, the Prince of... Um, Uh, Saudi Arabia uh, killing Khashoggi in Turkey because Khashoggi is a terrorist because he disagrees with what I say. So it's created this climate in the world where if something is branded a terrorist, then human rights don't count. So this has been a devastating thing that has happened. This also walks hand in hand with the rise of social media. So. I mean, social media is so new. We're, we're sort of accustomed to it, but actually it's something that's brand new and that we're still trying to figure out how to address the problem of uh, social media, which has to do with, as you say, lies, truth not mattering, um, the ability to, to uh, create a conversation through bots and propaganda. So. All that is very complex. And uh, I don't think that we have found the answer yet. I mean, the experts on propaganda and and lies say what has to happen is that children in kindergarten need to be taught to understand where you find the truth and where you find the lie, uh, because this is not going to go away. So um, we're grappling with this. I don't think we have an answer. Now, in terms of fiction and nonfiction, I mean, I don't see this as such a new thing. I mean, I, I, you know, obviously there's many kinds of fiction, right? So if we were talking about science fiction, well, yeah, that's something that's maybe completely within the imagination, although you might do some research on science or something. But if you're thinking like of so, the social novel, which I think is a bit what we're talking about, I mean, since, since novels became important, which is only really in the early 1800s, where this begins to become an important medium, um, the being able to even write down and publish and make copies and the existence of copyright and all of this, it's always addressed through fiction, the truth. I mean, that's why, you know, that's one of the things that's so important about the novel is it has the actual ability to change societies. So there's sort of key books that that we can see that so clearly. I mean, certainly Oliver Twist changed labor laws for children completely. And it's a work of fiction, but we also know that Dickens worked in those places. He was raised in a prison. So this was all, you know, a lot of really real material or you take somebody like Zola, his book uh, Germinal on the mistreatment of minors in France. I mean, that completely changed the, the treatment of minors and the conditions under which they worked. So, I mean, those are just two quite strong examples, but there's so many examples. And I think every country has certain novels that have created social change in their countries. So, I think that always the truth in a social novel is 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 married in some way to the fiction. I don't know if that answers any of all those questions that were a lot of questions.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it to, to me the problem is 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 now though that especially here in the States during the pandemic, that the big narratives of How do we deal with a pandemic? What are we doing against that? Who's holding back what kind of information? And so have become a matter of belief and not a fact anymore. I mean, a lot of people still hold out because um, they hear stories of the Um, of the vaccine swelling testicles or making you magnetic?
2: Social media. I mean, it's propaganda of another kind. It's the propaganda created by those who are against the vaccination or who don't believe that there's a virus. And all of these things that maybe existed before are now so amplified and so accessible. And I think it was actually Dr. Fauci who said if we'd had social media We'd still have in the times of polio. I mean, we'd still probably have polio because people would be saying, Oh, I don't want the polio vaccine. So I think that's, you know, these are the really negative sides of social media that, that it does create a, a place for. I mean, it's negative and it's positive. I mean, there's the positive freedom of expression side that people can express what they want to express, um, but it has a negative side too
0: yeah but 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 then um do we really have still like an appetite for fiction that that touches on social issues when we know that we can't get through actually to people anymore and 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 to to also answer like even before we had social media in 1919 and i read about that how the spanish flu was handled in america there's basically no difference to right now people had Made the exact same objections and also delayed taking vaccines uh social distancing anything i mean the the reaction was pretty much the same and and went along the relatively same ideological lines but but still, like now that we have these these different media outlets, um, I'm often asking myself what like this if I make up affection, like who's going to read that, because it's already so hard to distinguish what people want to say, or how to find out really what's going on. And it's sometimes even hard right now, for people who are willing to try. Because uh, from the CDC to other organizations, uh, messaging is often confusing. Uh, People, even who are not completely right wing, we're not trying to disseminating lies, pick up the wrong information. Just an example. um, Several years ago in 2013, I was in a classroom in New Mexico. And we were talking about it, it was a creative nonfiction class actually. And we were talking just briefly about Barack Obama. And somebody said, Oh, in the second election in 2012, he didn't win the popular vote. And I was like, wait, what? That's the first thing I hear. But but then we went on the internet, of course, and, and searched and Googled, but but the information is there. And, and, and right now I see a lot of people reading a lot of like fiction for escape, but the, the social novel you just mentioned seemed to I don't know, seems to have a very strange, precarious situation for me, like where it's, is it relevant? Does that really matter Um, when we can't even find out what the truth is in our real lives or or who's responsible for things?
1: I think that perhaps our definition of social novel is changing. And I think also the 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 COVID pandemic might have a little bit to do with that because you, you could argue that certain of science fiction has become uh, the new social novel because what used to be speculation is not something that we're dealing with on a daily basis across the planet. So you look at 1984, you look at George Orwell and you see what happened during the Trump presidency or you look at A Brave New World or you know one of those some of those classic narratives that used to think of pre-apocalyptic or apocalyptic scenarios now that's something that you know we're we're dealing with every day so is that novel that was uh speculation fantasy just pure imagination something that we can actually read from a very different perspective during the days of the of the pandemic so there might be a shifting sense of of what what reality means for for the reader also you know going back a little bit to to your novel Jennifer for someone like me who is very aware of what's going on with uh, femicides in Mexico City you're addressing something that's very very real and you know a, a terrible crisis across across Mexico not only in the state of Guerrero but this something that's going on uh Many many places in Mexico, but if you are not familiar with this type of situation, this 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 sort of genocide that takes place in many places, not only in Mexico, uh, against women, you might think that this novel is just a pure, you know, fiction that doesn't have any grounds, uh, that is not grounded in reality. So maybe, um, maybe I don't know the way in which we associate ourselves with certain type of genres depends, you know, very much on, on our situation or how we position ourselves as, as readers and what we know, about a very specific scenario.
2: Well, I mean, I, I, I guess I'll take the question a little bit to, to a personal experience. So my experience with Prayers for the Stolen and with other books, uh, is that actually they have been quite relevant. So for example, Prayers for the Stolen was 12 years of research, although it's all fiction. There's only uh, one character who's loosely based on a real person. But that book came out in July of 2014 and Oyotsi Napa was in September of 2014. And it was a, a novel that actually predicted exactly what happened at Ayotzinapa or a a part of what happened at Ayotzinapa. And then, which for the audience who may not know was the killing of these young normalista teachers in the state of Guerrero. And uh, so, I mean, I was even invited because of prayers for the stolen to, to the United States Congress to speak about the trafficking of little girls. And I had the extremely surreal experience of Um, speaking about people that were completely invented as if they were real, these Congress people would address, you know, and what about Paula and what happened to her and as though they were real. And of course they weren't real. And, And then I had also the other experience of it being published all over the place, all over the world and winning prizes, even prizes by high school students in France, it won the prize that, that the, all the high schools give to one book a year. So it really spoke to young teenagers. Two weeks ago, I, speaking of New Mexico, I spoke to a class of Native American children on a reservation about prayers for the stolen. That's their favorite book. They, all they wanted on earth was to meet me because there's so many things in that book that they could relate to. Um, and, and then the movie, So, you know, why did they make a movie of this subject? Well, they did. So for example, in Mexico, let's say 500 people read the book. In the movie we know because of the streaming way that they can check on Netflix, it's streamed at least 7 million people on Netflix. And it's a finalist for the Oscars, a, a movie about the stealing of little girls. And then In the novel, there's also the the part three takes place in the women's jail in Mexico City. And what I learned by being at that jail quite a lot was that nobody goes and visits the women because the men's jail and the women's jail are side by side. And no, everybody goes to visit the men. There's just blocks and blocks of people going to visit the men. Nobody visits the women and by publishing this book, I found out that this is true all over the world. It's true in Sweden, it's true in Denmark, it's true in Holland. Women prisoners are not visited, which just is a reflection again, of how women have no value in society uh, on a profound level. So I would say that, that my experience with, oh, and then the other thing is the beginning research for the book, which took two years, I was, Uh, I didn't know where the book was going, but I wanted to write about how violence was affecting women in Mexico. So the first two years, which were the last years of the presidency of Fox, I was interviewing women of drug traffickers. That's how it started. And then, so because I had done that, I knew where these little girls were being taken. And when the book came out, Proceso, which is like the Time Magazine of Mexico, I mean, the most important sort of news magazine, published the whole part of my novel that has to do with the ranches on the border uh, in their news section of their magazine. And I had to leave the country for four months. Because why did they put that in the news section? Like, What editorial decision was made about that? So certainly I have not felt, I mean, I'm the first one to be surprised. I mean, the first thing I said about this book to my son was, I just wrote a book nobody's going to care about because it's about little girls in Guerrero. Who cares? Nobody cares. It's much more important in Guerrero if your car is stolen than your daughter, believe me. So I just thought, well, I had written a book that nobody was going to care about. So everything that has happened to the book, I'm the most surprised of all. But it, has, it hasn't changed anything. But at least we know it's on the table. So what you're saying about it, not mattering and nobody cares, that hasn't been my experience. And the book that follows Prayers for the Stolen, which is called Gun Love, it's all about the trafficking of guns into Mexico. And so much of the problems of the border have to do with the guns that sustain the terrible violence in Mexico and Central America. And I mean, that book, which is, all about guns, um, has also had a sort of success that I, I'm surprised by. So, and is being made into a movie as well. So it hasn't been my experience personally that these not kinds of novels don't matter anymore. I mean my experience has been is that they do matter.
1: Yeah I think that I think that they don't matter but I think that they matter Precisely because they they tell the story from a very personal perspective, as as fiction, I don't think that people would be interested in in nonfiction work that because you know it's been exposed for so many years by by journalists, the issue of of uh, trafficking of girls, but when you when you have actual characters that makes a huge difference. Well, but it creates
2: empathy. It, it creates. It empathy. Does.
1: It does. And also, this is something that's been going on for so many years. Yeah. My father is from Guerrero, and I heard this story ever since I was a little child. Not the the, yeah. the, the the knowledge that so-and-so se la llevaron, you know, that someone was taken. Yeah. By, but just, you know, that was that was the exact term. She was taken. And that was perfectly... Or stolen.
2: La robaron.
1: Yeah, you know, okay. se la robaron, se la llevaron. So that's something that's been going on I don't know for how long, I don't know if decades, centuries in some places in Mexico or all over Mexico, but it definitely yeah. makes a difference when you, when you write a novel and you create that connection with the reader. And then of course, the, what you just mentioned, the fact that that the novel is made into a film that goes from 500 uh, readers to 7 million uh, viewers. That's a massive, massive difference. Massive.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, to go back to the examples that I mentioned earlier, there was, we know, a lot of journalism around child labor laws in Dickensian England, but nobody remembers that journalism, but we remember Oliver Twist.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, and, and, and that's exactly sort of where my question sort of comes in is, is this kind of the is fiction now the only thing that we can trust, because like, for example, uh, to give a very personal example in 2017, this whole neighborhood where I'm sitting right now burned down 1500 houses just were erased um, in a wildfire. And as soon as people had rebuilt their homes and the drought is still continuing, of course, people again washed their cars in the driveway, uh, did fireworks uh, on 4th of July, like in in the middle of the drought. And even though they have a very, very personal connection to climate change, to the wildfires, to devastation, it's more important, I think, for them to go back to life as it was before in order to feel comforted. Instead of saying, okay, life has changed, what do we do now? They go back to an older model because they're missing it. It's kind of weird nostalgia. At least that's that's what I'm thinking, sort of talking to neighbors Um that might be too charitable sometimes, but 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 I do feel this washing your car in the driveway and wasting water, is an is an old ritual. They just they just love because it signals to them that everything is okay. Um, but so so in a world where we're like like we're seeing all the signs, but we're not even listening to our personal experience. Uh, what do we have then? I mean, how do we really reach people? And and you and you answered that really beautifully with okay, it is maybe the novel, because it is not true, but true, but but able to convey truth when when sort of factual information, creative nonfiction, whatever is stuck maybe in politics or in in political debates?
2: I don't know. I mean, I think. <laughs> Like everything, um, it depends on the novel. Uh, You know, is it good or isn't it good? You know, does it reach or doesn't it? I mean, there's, there's, you know, we, we only have to look at the history of literature to know, you know, what are the works that move us and change us and modify us. So it's hard to sort of speak sweepingly of all novels because, they're all very different, you know, but, um, and everybody has their own way of walking through the door of, of the story they want to tell. So, I mean, in my case, I'm always walking through the door of poetry and thinking that the thing that might make it bearable and less painful is language, you know, but another writer might feel that, you know, they must, uh, you know, accentuate the violence and sometimes even uh, make it gruesome, that's almost unbearable to read. So I'm looking for a language that makes it bearable. Maybe another writing writer's looking for a language that makes it absolutely unbearable. Um, you know, so it's hard to have these sort of sweeping generalized uh, ideas, you know. I mean, just as there are communities that that go on as though nothing happened. There are examples of other communities that completely do change their way of behaving. So always it's hard to generalize, I think.
1: Yeah, you just reminded me of Cormac McCarthy's treatment of history in the border between Mexico Mm -hmm. and the US with that famous uh, trilogy, the border trilogy. And if you read- um, And then you read Bolaños.
2: I mean, Bolaños is covering the same territory. As Cormac. Exactly.
1: Right, right. As is
2: Cristina Rivera Garza is covering that part of the border as well.
1: Well, Bolaño Um, is an interesting example because, you know, he he used, I don't know if you met Sergio Gonzalez, who who wrote Huesos en el Desierto mm -hmm. as a work of journalism. And then he was friends with Roberto Bolaño, and then Roberto Bolaño made him a character in the novel and used all the research to write a you know, big section of the famous novel, 2666. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. uh, but when dealing with, you know, especially situations along the border between Mexico and the US, which is of course crowded with tragedy and and, and sad stories and injustice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you can have, like you said, uh, very, very dark, View it's hard not to have it, as in the case of Conrad McCarthy or in the case of Roberto Bolano. But the, the qualitative difference between the the journalistic world, the historical uh, volume, and and the novel, is such that it, for, in my perspective, of course, I'm biased because I'm a novelist myself. I I always get more out of the novel than, than the work of journalism or the, or the history book. And I believe that uh, I get a lot more out of uh, novel dealing as in the case of your book with child trafficking that I get from reading an essay on the New York Times Magazine. Just, it remains, its, la- its effect is long lasting and it stays with me. As you know, movie stays. One thing that was interesting, of course, in the case of of your book, is that it was made into a feature film by someone who was doing documentaries, someone used to dealing with nonfiction. Right. And I, I was telling Stefan right before the conversation began that to me that meant something very powerful. That Tatiana decided that. Is this her first feature? Yeah.
2: Well, what happened, the way it, yeah, it is her first uh, uh, fiction, piece, work of fiction. So the way it happened is that it was, uh, the the producers of Prayers for the Stolen are the producers of the movie Roma.
1: Oh, I see.
2: So they bought Prayers for the Stolen and then they took it to Tatiana and they asked her if she would be interested. And she said yes. And, you know, for those who might be listening, who haven't read the book, the movie is only part one of the novel, and it's uh, and it's um, uh, resolved in a different way than the book.
1: Part uh, well, part two is it out already? The book?
2: well, no. In in the book that you have, there's part okay. one, part two, and oh, part okay. three. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And Tatiana only made the movie on part one.
1: Oh, okay. Because so I haven't finished the novel.
2: Yeah, so you'll, part two right. takes place in Acapulco, and part three takes place in the Santa Marta okay. jail for women in Mexico City. Okay. So Great. that is not obviously in the movie.
1: That that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Have you have you done a lot of uh, nonfiction writing, Jennifer?
2: Um, I wouldn't say a lot. I've done it. I did, apart from writing this book about the uh stealing of little girls. I did write a big piece like for The Guardian on the subject. So not so much. I mean, yes, but not I wouldn't I wouldn't consider myself a journalist. What I don't what I prefer about writing fiction than writing journalism is that with journalism, you have this like pact with the with your reader, this pact that you will to the best of your knowledge tell the truth. And that's a very, um, I think, a very serious uh, promise that you're making to your reader. And so it, it requires, you know, that kind of level of care. And I like the freedom of, of telling the story in the novel. And I like to be able to use the language, too. Like, for example, in Prayers for the Stolen, to, to discuss, like, the use of language. I mean, Paula is gang-raped. So I'm the kind of writer that I would never write that scene. Another writer might Paola. write that. I would never write that scene. Right. So what Paula says is to her friend, she says, "What can I tell you? I was just another plastic bottle of water that everybody took a drink of." You know. So I'm always trying to to enter through that kind of language. You know, which obviously you can't unless you're quoting somebody, you can't do that in journalism. I would have had to have said, well, she got back and she was very traumatized and you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, whereas in my novel, I can say she drank milk from a baby bottle, which lets you know she's severely traumatized.
1: Which which brings me back to Cormac McCarthy being someone who makes decisions that completely traumatize the reader in terms of graphic violence, mm-hmm. the way in which he describes atrocities committed by mercenaries, by you know headhunters yeah. in, in in the border. I remember having nightmares after reading reading those books. Yeah. And, you know, that's a different strategy. I mean, good for him. He decided to do that and it works. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also the kind of writer who would not, um, would really think about writing something that that might just be too much. Um, I want to be fair to my characters and I, I want to respect my characters. I, yeah, I don't I do think too. just about the reader. I think about the characters.
2: Yeah, me too. I think I don't want to, Put, like for example, the one I just gave you. Exactly. I would want to put Paula in that position. And then the book about guns, I decided to write it as if it were a ballad. So, you mm. know, I sort of think of it as a great long song, you know, mm. so, um, you know, everybody goes in the, into these themes the way they do. You
1: know? How you deal with that uh, theme in, when when you have to write something that's really because you've done it, you're incredibly dark and risque in some of your some of your novels.
0: I think I'm I'm a very explicit writer, but um, in a very understated way. I don't revel in violence, but I describe what happens um, usually because because to me it's it's sometimes really necessary to show just how awful a certain thing is, not to hide it behind something else or not to just leave it entirely to language, but to make clear that certain things have a a very visceral reality. Uh, In one of my novels, um, a woman is grinding up a glass bulb and putting it in ground meat to feed it to her dogs because she wants to kill them. She wants to get rid of them because she has a new life she wants to go to and, and she wants to get rid of that. And also um, a boy that's coming to her house, kind of like a wild child is accidentally coming into the yard and also grabbing one of the burgers she's putting out for the for the dogs. and. To me there's there's a moment between fantasy violence and the type of violence you actually commit yourself that is very very different and feels very different when you can imagine doing something still when you when you when you start actually doing that for example you say oh i want to swim in the pacific ocean and you go to bodega bay which is the closest town to me where there are beaches actually taking your clothes off and walking into the water is neither pretty, doesn't feel very good, because it's this very visceral, brutal element of icy cold water, uh, a very rough beach or rough at times. And it's exhilarating. It does something to you that I think nicely spun language can't quite achieve. I think reality when you do something, when you actually make the burger meat, and you have to grind up the glass, and little shards are going everywhere, and you're trying not to spread them all over the kitchen floor, and you're not really sure what to do with them, um, creates its own reality, it feels very, very uncomfortable, making well, oh yeah,
2: I think that's a really good example. Sorry to interrupt you. But what no, is very ahead. interesting about that example, and I completely agree. And it's something that I even, when I have to teach, I teach to my students is that it's very interesting when you're able to produce a physical reaction in the reader. And so the immediately the hamburger story, you're producing a physical reaction in the reader. I mean, I'm already f- feeling in my mouth, those pieces of glass breaking in my teeth, you know? Yeah. Uh, so you're creating an actual, that's why, and also to take it to the metaphor of going in the cold water, it's because you actually, as you read, you have a physical response to what you're reading. And that's always super interesting to do as a writer, is to, is to produce a physical feeling in the reader and in yourself as you're doing it, it's on some level as well. Yeah, yeah, I find that very exciting when that happens.
1: And that's also a kind of confirmation that, you know, writers used to are used to saying, with a great deal of vanity, that the, the literary experience is so sublime and so powerful, and there is nothing like it. But I'm I'm the kind of person who finds a lot of uh, the sublime in reality, not in the books. Uh, I, I I do believe that the actual experience that quote unquote common people uh, deal with on their daily basis are very very powerful and and absolutely um, you know in terms of, of, of quality and intensity the same or equivalent to the most sublime experiences that a poet can can give you on the page it, it does make sense that we want to find you know justifications to what we do and reasons to what we do but to believe that that the literary experience is somehow uh, more intense or, or, or more powerful than the experience of life on, on a daily basis. I, 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 I find that very problematic. And one of the things that I um, really like in, in narratives that have to do with, with common people is that you totally identify uh, the same decrease of pain and joy that, that you can identify in people who are not regarded usually as, as common. I'm, I'm reminded, for instance, of a great Mexican author that I really like, Juan Garcia Ponce, who would write about, you know, very snotty people from Mexico City, from Polanco, from the south of Mexico, but he would also write about very common people in an equally respectful way, giving them the dignity of, of their feelings and their emotions and their thoughts in the same way as he did to, to the other sophisticated people in, in their novels. And that's something that, you know, we, we cannot take away. And I absolutely love and, and respect writing that, that tends to be more democratic in that sense and tends to have a more compassionate view of, of human beings in general.
0: Jennifer has to make an appointment. So let's come to the FDF list, um, the foreign domestic and forbidden list of recommendations. Try at your own risk. Anything, Jennifer, you want to uh, recommend either TV, movie, books, uh, restaurants, something else entirely, anything? that you think our listeners should check out?
2: Well, I think they should check out the Penn International website and see what Penn is doing to help writers all over the world who, who, to go back to the very beginning of this conversation, who risk everything to tell the truth. They risk their homeland, They risk their freedom, they risk their jobs, they risk their families, and they even risk their own lives to tell the truth. And it's an organization that really needs support. And I would urge everybody to to check that out. And also, if they're even more interested, we just published a book, which you can get on Amazon, which is 100 Years of the History of Freedom of Expression So it's all the history of Penn, how that began, how the concept that if there were perhaps a network of writers all over the world communicating with one another, we would have less hatred, less xenophobia, and a better world. So it's an extraordinary organization um, and uh, any writer should be interested in being a part of Penn, I think.
1: And I think that's an extraordinary recommendation. I just read this morning, I think in The Guardian, that a writer and novelist from Uganda was recently incarcerated. I looked it up, I found one of his books, I bought it. Uh, I don't know if that helps, I hope so. <laughs> just, well, I think Uganda that's Uganda also... has
2: a terrible dictatorship and it kills its writers and jails his writers. Stella Nazayani is a huge Ugandan case uh, has spoken against. Um, the dictatorship there in very strong terms. Um, Yeah, I mean, Penn is a great organization and and it needs to be supported and we won't, you know, people take these freedoms for granted and they're actually really fragile and they're also very new. Um, So in the United States, when people who I think are quite sort of spoiled on these subjects, they need to see what's happening in the rest of the world and how we really need to, in the United States, um, really understand how uh, privileged it is to have freedom of expression.
0: Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you so much for coming on, Jennifer. It was total pleasure talking to Uh, you. Thank Thank you you so much.
2: Yeah, thank you very much.
1: Gracias, Jennifer.
2: Ay, que gusto verte.
0: thank you everyone for listening thank you very much the music we're playing for the intro and outro is by springtide coney island train blues and comes via the free music archive thank you so much jennifer again and have a wonderful day and i hope to see you again soon
2: yeah thank you so much bye